Ruth chapter 3 is where we see ourselves today. You guys remember who wrote the book of Ruth? If you know, then you're smarter than all the other biblical scholars out there because no one knows with 100% certainty who wrote the book of Ruth, right? But who is our best guess? Samuel. I heard somebody over here say it. Samuel. The prophet Samuel. There's a lot of language that is similar to Samuel's language. And it's around the same time that Samuel would have been operating as a, as a prophet. And who remembers uh, the, the, um, the times that this was, the events of Ruth are transpiring? Do you guys remember the times of the judges, right? Where everyone was living according to the law of God. Everyone was doing what was right according to God, right? No, I see some of you shaking your heads. No, what was going on? Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, right? And that doesn't work out. We call that moral relativism, right? We talked about that last week or a week before last. And just to kind of recap a little bit, it follows geographically these, uh, this family that are leaving a royal town called Beit Lechem, the house of bread. It's a royal town where the Davidic line is running through geographically. They're leaving this because of what? A famine, and the irony there is really thick, right? That there is a famine in the royal house of bread. Then they have to go east, and east is always the direction of what? Exile. They go east, right? And they stay there, and Naomi and her son Elimelech, which is the, the uh, my God is king, right? His name means Naomi, means the pleasant one. They, um, they go east to Moab. Now, who... From whom did the Moabites descend? Lot. Lot. In that situation that happened in the cave way back when, right? They're they're the product of the incestuous incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. But they go to to Moab to find food. They find food. They get get settled a little bit to the point that Naomi's two sons married two Moabite daughters. Then her two sons die, right? And then... Um, her husband dies, Elimelech dies, and it just becomes Ruth and her two daughters-in-law. I'm, I'm sorry, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And then one of the daughter-in-laws, one of the daughters-in-law, decides to stay back in Moab, while Ruth decides to leave and go with Naomi back to her people in Beit Lechem. Right? And she says the famous line we all know from the book of Ruth, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And the Moabites did not do that. That wasn't a typical Moabite thing to do. But that's what, that's what happened. So they moved back to Beit Lechem. They come back. Now we have a problem because Naomi is in a, in a position of, uh, of what we call exile, galutz. And she has been cut off from her people and cut off from her land. In the ancient Near Eastern times and world, that was everything. Your people and your land. Because you've got to remember the nation of Israel was divided into clans. And those clans were, they were connected to a piece of land in the established borders that God gave to the people of Israel. So your clan was then divided further into your family. So that land was further divided into your family's land. And if you left, and let's say your husband died and you died and you don't have any more children, any more descendants, you have lost that connection and the ability to be restored to your family and to your land. You're in trouble, especially as an older widow. Where are you going to get your livelihood? You're looking at the rest of your life being on a kind of like the Torah's version of welfare, where you're gleaning in the field and living off of what was left over. It's not a very good livelihood. So if somehow we can find a way to get reconnected to our people and find a way to get reconnected back to our land, then we're good. We're we're established again, right? And there's a lot of countries through history that have um, 
have based their your ability to vote based on whether or not you own land. Did you know that? And that was that was kicked around here in the United States of America early in our inception and our founding is should we like in Britain do it where you only get a say so in the government if you own property, if you own land. And our founder said, no, that's not how we're going to do it. But who is the main character in the book of Ruth? Now, pause. You're, a teacher asked an obvious question like this. You should know that it's probably not just the obvious answer, right? <laughs> mm. We often look at Ruth because the book is named Ruth. We often look at Ruth as the main character of the book. I'm going to submit to you that that's maybe wrong. That the main character of the book should be viewed as Naomi. Just like the main character of the Bible is not the Gentiles coming to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but rather the people of Israel. And the fact that there are Gentiles who did come to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are an essential part of the story. But the main character of the story is not the Gentile believers, but the people of Israel, and how God wants them to be reconnected to their family and to their land. But yeah, I think, and you know, just like how we look at um. We look at the story of Joseph and the story of Judah. We, we look at the story of Joseph and Judah and Joseph as the main character, right? We look at it a lot like that. But I think we look at it wrong. I think Judah is the main character of those last several chapters of the book of Genesis. And it's about Judah's repentance and using Joseph as the catalyst of that repentance. So in biblical literature, it's not always whose name is mentioned the most is the main character. It's who is, is in a position and poised to have the most change in their life as the main character. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So we talked about how the book of Ruth, I believe, should be viewed as metaphorically and literally. And a metaphor, for those who don't remember, is that there are symbols in the story that stand for a bigger and, and represent a bigger principle. That's a metaphor. And so all these characters and these places and these things and actions in the book of Ruth are to be seen metaphorically as well as literally, not one to the exclusion of the other. And we talked about this term a couple of weeks ago, galut. Galut is exile. It's being away from the presence and the land and the house of God. Exile. And then we talked... Oh, you're taking a picture. Did you get it? Okay, good. <laughs> then we talked about goel. Who, who or what is a goel? It's a redeemer, a redemption. We prayed, we prayed that in the first benediction of the Amidah. And we said it twice, if you were looking for it. He is our goel, our redeemer. Okay? This is what gets us out of galut. The goel gets us out of galut. It brings us back. Okay? And then there are four responsibilities of a goel. And let me, I kind of... Um, dissected them real quick, but if you have your Bibles, let me give you some verses real quick. The four responsibilities of a goel. Four responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. Okay, look with me at Leviticus twenty five forty eight. Leviticus twenty five forty eight. If you get there, read it nice and loud. Leviticus twenty five forty eight. Go. Yeah, read it real loud. The poor man has the right to be bought back and become free. One of his relatives may buy the 
Good. So number one responsibility of the kinsman redeemer is to buy an Israelite relative out of slavery. To buy an Israelite relative out of slavery. All right. So now let's go look at Numbers 35, verse 19. Numbers 35, 19 for the second responsibility. If you get there, read it real loud. Numbers 35, 19. The second responsibility of a kinsman redeemer of the Goel is to be an avenger of blood and to make a murderer of a family member pay for their murder. Hmm. Look at Leviticus 25, 25 now. When you get there, read it real loud. Leviticus 25, 25. Leviticus 25, 25. Okay. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has... And he has sold some of his possessions, and if his, his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. So the third responsibility of the kinsman redeemer is to buy back family land that had been forfeited because of debt. Okay? So, so far we have to buy an Israelite relative out of slavery, to be an avenger of blood, and to buy back family land that had been forfeited. Last one, look at me, look, look with me. At Deuteronomy 25.10, Deuteronomy 25.10, for the last responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. Deuteronomy 25.10, when you get there, read it real loud. Go, Bob. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Mm, is that 25.10? 25.10. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's, if you back up and look at the context of that, it's to marry the family, uh, it's, it's to carry on the family name by marrying a childless widow, okay, to carry on her name so that she has a connection to the land, continued connection to the land. Okay, so the four responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. And let's, let's keep those in mind as we look at this character called Boaz. Now, we got Galut is the exile. Goel is the redeemer. What is this? This is the Besorah. This is the good news that the Goel has come. It's good news. We now have a connection to our land and to our people again. That's Besorah. That's good news, right? And we call that sometimes gospel. And when we talk about metaphor, let's go through these real quick. Naomi, the pleasant one, turned bitter and hopeless. She represents Israel in exile. And she left full and has returned empty. Let's talk about Ruth. She's the friendly one, a clueless Moabite Gentile. She starts full, but enters Judah empty. She represents Gentiles coming to faith in the God of Israel near the time of the Goel. She's somewhat clueless at times, right? Just like we are. (laughs) Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, he is the agent of the Goel. He is the one who can fix it all and restore Naomi's connection back to her land and back to her people. He is the kinsman redeemer. Got it? Remember the characters? And then we talked last week, or week before last, or week before that, I can't remember. The, the, in Genesis 24, I think it is, the Vani Vrachu, how God says that I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be Vani Vrachu. And we talked about how that's an that's a agricultural term, it means to be engrafted. So we could read that, that passage, that Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and through you... All the, all, the, all the goyim, all the Gentiles can be engrafted. 
What does that mean? Like engrafted into my family, into your family. Okay? Vanivahu. And then we read Isaiah 56, 8. Thus declares the Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel. And I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. Then we talked last week, uh, John 10, 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. You hear the language of engrafting going on there? And then we heard this, Romans eleven twenty five. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Or we could say Naomi in this story. Until the pleroma of the Gentiles has come in. That's the Greek word pleroma. It means the, full, the fullness of it. This is the same word that Yeshua uses in Matthew 5, 17. When he says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to pleiru. It's the same Greek word. So many people say, like, pleiru must mean a different form of abolish. Well, no, because Paul uses the same Greek word to mean to, f- to fill up with something. Or, the com- or, like, not the completion, but the, the full harvest of something. So what Yeshua is saying is, I've not, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've, I've come to give them, I've come to fill them up. And, to, exa- and to, to reveal the deeper dimensions of them. But that's that same word there. And in this way, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. You think Paul's got the story of Ruth on his mind with this verse? I think so. So I got a couple of questions to make you think here before we jump into reading Ruth 3. Are there any miracles in Ruth? Yes. Really? Where? Very definitely. Are there any supernatural miracles in Ruth? Uh-uh. No, there's no supernatural miracles in Ruth. There's no, there's no miraculous healings. There's no um, splitting of a Red Sea. There's no, there's no manna coming down from heaven. There's no supernatural events in the book of Ruth. But there are a lot of events that we would call providential events. Providential events. God's providence is... The taking of the natural aspects of this existence and using them to fulfill his existence or his, his plan. Okay? Now, he will use supernatural miracles and he will use the providential things. Could, could you guys, would, would we mind not running back and forth? Just thank you. Um, but God, more than anything in scripture, listen to me closely. Because a lot of people come into our faith. Listen close. A lot of people come into our faith and they say, why have I not received healing? Why have I not received a miracle for this? Why have I not seen God break through in this particular area of my life? What well, might be that you're missing God's providence in something bigger. It might be that you're misunderstanding how God moves a majority of the time through people's lives. And that's through taking natural aspects of our existence and using them to his glory. Okay? Remember that. And don't doubt, don't fear, don't give up on him because you don't see a supernatural breakthrough of some kind. All right? So, there's no supernatural acts of God in the book of Ruth. But is there? And that's the thing about providence is that it is a, like, it is a supernatural, it ultimately is a miracle when you package it all together. But it's not like a miracle like we would describe, like, a, like Elijah's oil or anything like that. But you have a question? I guess the reason I said yes is because when you see a person 
of age, like Naomi, and they have a very hardened heart, mm-hmm. and they go 180 degrees, and they yeah. change their attitude the way she does at the end. Yeah. To me, that's a miracle. Yeah, that would be, that would be, yeah, I would say so as well, but in the 10th... Ten- and also the fact, like you were saying, the providential end of it with Boaz and, and um, Ruth getting together, and then the baby, and then all of that. Yeah. That is all well, take, take this as an example of Providence, for instance. Yeah. You've got a sign on, on Headland Avenue. It's like a two-foot by one-foot sign, and it says Sabbath services, 10.30 in the morning. A little plastic sign, okay, on Headland Avenue. And a family drives by it a couple times, and it piques their interest. And they say, maybe we should pop in there and see what that's all about. And they pop in. There's just maybe like 10, 12 people, if that, going on. But that sign has radically changed that family's life. Amen. And that family is sitting in our midst today. And Ariana wrote a really good update the other, the other day about how it was, how many of you to begin with in your family here? Four of you here, and then it's 22. Wow. And, but you think beyond that, though, not just her family coming and relocating and being a part of our congregation, but think about... If it wasn't for that sign, would like Macy have, have ever met Anthony and they got engaged and they're about to be married here next month? Would Emily have met Chris? And, you know, like all these other different things that are kind of, but when you really think about it and sit down and think about just a little sign, it's not a miracle. It's not like an angel came and, and then like zapped back up to heaven. It's not like that. It's just probably Bill Nichols or somebody walked out and put that thing in the ground. That's providence, though, right? And it's changed a lot of people's lives for the better and given and brought God glory. So let's get into Ruth. I know you're waiting. Let's read Ruth. So turn there with me real fast. We're going to read Ruth, and I'm going to comment along the way. Ruth chapter 3. And we're going to spend one more week in Ruth after this. You guys ready? There's 85 verses in the book of Ruth in total. It's a relatively small book. But I keep asking this question, is the gospel of Yeshua found in the book of Ruth? And that's what we keep, I keep highlighting and bringing out to you guys. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I should be seeking security from you so that things will go well with you. Now there's Boaz, our relative, You were with his girls. He's going to be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Let's pause here. The threshing floor in Hebrew is a gorin. A gorin is, uh, I think I've got a picture here. This is like a gorin. It is a place where all the farmers come. It is a communal space where the farmers can bring their harvest from that year. And they can separate the barley from the chaff. Okay? Now, this is a very important time because this is a celebratory time in the agricultural uh, community. Just like when we have our peanut festival or people have watermelon festivals or strawberry festivals, it's a time of celebration. We had a good festival. We had a good harvest. And now we can lavish on what we have harvested. We are secure for this, until this time next year. We're good to go. Let's party. Right. And that's kind of this. This is the epicenter of all that. So picture a lot of maybe revelry going on. 
There's probably drinking going on. There's feasting. There's maybe music, people dancing, workers. You know, just a big kind of party while the, the, the grain is being threshed or it's, it's kind of being thrown up in the air. And I've got, what they would do is take a five-forked uh, winnowing fork. Now, five, you should always, when you hear the, the word five, what should you think? Grace and there's five books of Torah. That's how God will judge humanity through the through grace and with Torah, right? So they're throwing that up in the air, and the wind, which is a representation of what spirit, is blowing away that which should not be there, and then the heavy stuff, the substantial stuff, is falling to the ground. And so they're doing that all day long, from morning to to night, and they're um, they're celebrating this harvest, right? So let's keep reading before we go to Galatians 4. So she says, so bathe yourself, anoint yourself, put on good clothes. Now, if you look at Revelation 19.8, I'm not going to go there right now, but write down Revelation 19.8. This is prophetic, talking about the bride of Messiah, clothing herself. And she says, go down to the threshing floor, but don't reveal your presence to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And then... When he lies down, take note of where he's lying, and later go in and uncover his feet and lie down. So let's pause and talk about why is Boaz sleeping out next to the threshing floor, do you think? So picture again, lots of people threshing their grain, their livelihood. It's probably worth a considerable amount of money, right? And then they're taking their individual stacks of grain or or sacks of grain, whatever they're going to put it in, and they're going to store it off-site a little bit. But there's been drinking, there's been revelry. It says even Boaz was drinking and eating. There's partying going on. So what are you going to do at night? <laughs> You're going to guard your goods, exactly. right? You're going to sleep out. And I was reading one study, he was talking about when people would pile up their grain, they would actually sleep around the grain pile with their heads on the grain itself and their feet poking out. So they'd be like spoked out like, like a tire. So picture that Boaz maybe and his workers are all sprawled out around this big pile of grain and they're waiting and they're guarding the grain meanwhile resting after a day of working and drinking and celebrating. And then she uncovers his feet, which is a symbol and like an act of submission to uncover someone's feet. Like just how we are commanded by Yeshua to wash people's feet. It's kind of the act of submission. And then she lies down. And it says, he will tell you what to do. And she responded. Now, this is important. We listen close. Everything you do, everything, everything you tell me, I will do. What does that sound like to you? Obedience. Obedience. But what is that? What is that? It sounds like Israelite. Exactly. Exactly. You nailed it. Exodus 24, 7. The Israelites at the base of Sinai say, everything you say, we will do. And so she's repeating that. Now, if this is prophetic, we should see this kind of language show up in prophetic, more apocalyptic kind of, kind of talk. Let's go to Luke chapter 3, and I'll show you. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. And Boaz is a symbol of who? Yeshua, who is our kinsman, redeemer, our goel. So we should see Yeshua talking about this metaphoric, Threshing floor. Luke 3, verse 16. 
The people were in a state of great expectancy, and everyone was wondering whether perhaps Yochanan himself might be the Messiah. So Yochanan answered them all, I am immersing you in water, but he who is coming is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals or uncover his feet. He will immerse you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. He has with him his winnowing fork to clear out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn but he will burn up the straw with unquenchable fire. Sounds a lot like what's going on here in Ruth, right? So when you approach the threshing floor with a state of humility and submission, it seems like things will go well with you, right? Now let's go, I think I've got some verses up here I want to take you to as well. 2 Samuel 24, 18. And we need to understand the symbol of the threshing floor. 2 Samuel 24, 18. And what the threshing floor symbolizes. Go to 2 Samuel 24 and verse 18. For the sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and start reading it while you're going there. It says, Gad came to David that day and said to him, Get up and set up an altar to Adonai on the threshing floor, the Gorin of Arvna, the Yavusi. David went up and did what God had said, as Adonai had, what Gad had said Adonai had ordered. So Arvna looked out and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Arvna went out and prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Then, the, then Arvna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant, David said, to buy your threshing floor in order to build an altar to Adonai so that the plague will be lifted from my people. And Arvna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up anything that seems good to him. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. You can use the threshing sledges and the yokes for the oxen as firewood. All this, O my king, Aravna gives to the king. Then Aravna said to the king, May Adonai, your God, accept you. But the king said to Aravna, No, I insist on buying it from you at a price. I refuse to offer to Adonai, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for one and a quarter pounds of silver shekels. Then David built an altar to Adonai there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, Adonai took pity on the land and lifted the plagues from Israel. So what did this little threshing floor of Aravna become? The altar. But then later, what did it become? The, the temple mounts. The temple mount. And it's so important that we have scriptural evidence of David buying it as a price. At a price. Because you've got three things, three pieces of real estate in the Bible that are the most highly contested pieces of real estate in the entire world, which are, number one, the Temple Mount. Number two, the, uh, the, uh, the Shechem. Remember uh, Yosef and Shechem? And number three, the Cave at Machpelah. Okay? Three most highly contested pieces of real estate in, in the world right now. And all three have one thing in common, is that the, the characters in the Bible buy them outright. Right? Remember Abraham, the cave of Machpelah? The guy was just going to give it to him. Abraham said, no, I'm going to buy it from you. We have deed in hand for those pieces of land. And yet even so today, the Arabs have taken control over all of those. Yeah, each of those. Even though we can show that. <laughs> well, it's from a position of authority. They're not going to believe what the Bible says about it. Let's go to Psalms 1-4 now. We're understanding the, the concept of the threshing floor. So the threshing floor could be seen as a symbol of the meeting place of God and his people. Psalm 1-4. Not so the wicked, they don't succeed, 
They are like chaff driven by the wind. For this reason, the wicked won't stand up on judgment, nor will sinners at the gathering of the righteous. For Adonai watches over the way of the righteous, but the wicked he has doomed. So you see this language of threshing going on, right? And it's like a, it's a harvest, it's a gathering of the righteous and the unrighteous, and there's a threshing and there's a separating of the wheat and the chaff. And that's what's going on, and that's what's being alluded to in the book of Ruth here. So let's pick up at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz was through eating and drinking and he was feeling quite good, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of grain. She stole in. She uncovered his feet and she lay down. And in the middle of the night, the man was startled and he turned over. And there was a woman lying at his feet. The, uh, one of the Targums, which is an Aramaic translation, said that his flesh felt like uh, he was so startled. His flesh felt like a boiled turnip. <laughs> and he asked, who are you? And she answered, I am your handmaid, Ruth. So spread your robe over your handmaid. Now, if you're familiar with your Tanakh, this is Ezekiel chapter 16 kind of language, where God says to Jerusalem, I have spread my robe over you. And she's saying, spread your robe over me. Okay, we're not going to go to the Ezekiel 16 look at that right now, but that's Ezekiel 16 language. Because you are a goel. And we talked about the four responsibilities of the goel. Now, right away, he'd be like, whoa, yeah, I guess I am, right? He said, may Adonai bless you, my daughter. Your latest kindness is even greater than your first, in that you did not go after the young men, neither the rich ones nor the poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you everything you say. For all the city leaders among my people know that you are an eshet chayil. Now, what is an eshet chayil? It's a woman of valor. A woman of valor. Or you could translate it as a woman who's like a warrior. Eshet chayil. This is the prayer we pray over our wives on Friday nights. And we say on, at Erev Shabbat dinners, we say um, a woman of valor who can find her value is far beyond rubies and the heart of her husband safely trusts in her and he profits greatly thereby. Last night uh, we had my mom and Bob and Chris and Emily over for dinner and all three of us were able to pray that prayer over our wives some for the first time. And so it was really neat. And Eshet Chayil is a woman of valor. It comes from Proverbs 31, right? He's calling her this title, which is very significant. Verse 12. Now it is true that I am redeeming kinsmen, but there is a redeemer who is closer than I. Stay tonight, and if in the morning he will redeem you, fine. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, then as Adonai lives, I will redeem you. Now lie down in the morning. You see Boaz's concern and meticulousness with observing the Torah to the letter. In a day and age when that is disregarded, right? When everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Verse 14. She lay at his feet until morning. Then before it was light enough that people could recognize each other, she got up. Because he said, no one should know that the woman came to the threshing floor. It's pretty scandalous that she might do that, right? He doesn't want his reputation to be marred. He also said, bring the shawl you are wearing and take hold of it. So she held it in. Uh, she held it while he put six measures or vayamad shesh seorim. That's six seorim into it. Now, what do, your, what do your, some of your translations have for the measure there? Okay, ifa is going to be, that's like, that's her taking like three tons of barley. That's way too much. If it's an ifa, it's not correct. It's not there. It's seorim, okay, which is like probably several gallons of barley. Okay, still a lot, but not an, not an ifa. 
Okay, uh, and she he put this in. Now, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I told you guys why six. If this is metaphoric to something bigger, and nothing is in here coincidentally, you know why didn't Samuel, if he wrote this, why didn't he just say he put a bunch of barley in her cloak or in her robe? Why six? Six is the number of man. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? It's a good theory. Why six? Why six? How many years of humanity will there be? Six thousand. Six thousand. Yeah. And then I want you to do some some other homework between now and next week when we teach on Ruth four. There are six significant descendants of Ruth. I want you to look them up and see if you can tell me which six I'm thinking of. Okay, but I don't know with certainty why six. I don't know. I don't have like this big mind-blowing answer, but it's not there by accident. But think about that. It could be a combination of all those answers. Verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she asked, who are you, my daughter? My, my daughter? She told her everything the man had done for her. And then she added, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said to me, you shouldn't return to your mother-in-law with nothing. And Naomi said, my daughter, just stay where you are until you learn how the matter comes out. For the man won't rest unless he resolves the matter today. So Boaz is a man of righteousness and a man of character, isn't he? We see this playing out in his life. And I want to go to Galatians chapter 4 because I think that this is kind of a key that will help us unlock a little bit of Galatians which is a very confusing book for me to read sometimes. Galatians 4, but I think this is going to help us a little bit. Galatians 4, in verses 4 through 7. He says, but when the appointed time arrived, and let me ask this question, when is the story that we're reading in Ruth, when is that happening? This is the season of Shavuot, the barley harvest. We're in summer, early summer. This is, this is at an appointed time called Shavuot. So it says, at the, at the appointed time arrived, God sent forth his son. And who is his son? Yeshua. And who is Yeshua, who, who, who is Yeshua in the story of Ruth? Boaz, making sure you understand. He was born from a woman and born under the law. Now, the complete Jewish Bible I have has a crazy translation. I cross it all out. It's, it's bogus. That's why I'm not a huge fan of this translation. But he says, born under the Torah. So he was born of a woman, born under the Torah, so that he might redeem. And what's the Hebrew word for redeem? Goel. Goel. Redeem those also born under the law. And thus enable us to be made God's sons. Now you, because you are sons, God has sent forth into our hearts the spirit of his son, the spirit who cries out, Abba. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are also a co-heir. Okay. I hope that, so what we see is Boaz, a symbol of Yeshua, born under the law, abiding by the law in order to bring Naomi back to her people and back to her land, but then also reconciling this Gentile woman, this Gentile bride. Sound familiar? Sounds like the gospel to me. 
Sounds like the gospel, yeah. There we have it. We don't need to go to Ruth 4. We're done. (laughs) So let me ask this in closing here. You guys tell me, what are some alternate titles of this book? Okay, let's, let's put Ruth on the shelf for a minute. As a, as a title, let's just shelf that. What are some other titles that you might come up with? Yeah. Kinsman Redeemer. The Kinsman Redeemer? Yeah. Anything else? What's another title of the, this book? Yeah. Naomi. After this, you're frozen. Naomi. Naomi, yeah. What, what's a good title that would summarize the essence of this book, though? The Good News. The Good News? Okay. Let me help you out a little bit. Let me go back to Ruth. I wrote one down I think I like. And if you have another one, in the meantime, spit it out. Restoring Bitterness. Yeah, I like that. What about this? I came up with this title. It's kind of long. It wouldn't look good on a book cover. But it's a good, I think it summarizes how an exiled Israelite from a royal town is restored to her land and family through the stubborn loyalty and faithfulness of a Gentile bride. Too long. Too long. Yeah, pretty long. I did get that caveat. It would not look good on a book title. But to me, that not only captures better the essence of this book, but shows the prophetic more... Uh, metaphorical aspects of this book, does it not? That it's the stubborn loyalty of the Gentile bride that not only gets a place for the Gentile bride in the family and in the land, but it also is the catalyst through which the native-born people, the Naomi's, are brought into full restoration to their land and to their people. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? It's called the Gospel. With that, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to talk about t-shirts. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for this opportunity that I have to teach it. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room that has not embraced your good news and your gospel of Yeshua and declared him as their redeemer, as their goel, that they would do so today, that they would make a profession of faith, and they would say, your God will be my God and your people my people. And I pray that As we go throughout our week, we would have opportunities to share this good news with those around us. That a Redeemer has come and He has defeated death. And He will one day bring us to His threshing floor and He will judge humanity. And He will judge us fairly and righteously. And I pray this in His name. Amen.